have you to your seats. I promise you will be able to talk about whatever you were talking about when church is over. I've been here 15 plus years. I've never seen anybody die during service, so you will be able to continue your conversation. My name is Kurt. I go here too. So. All right. What we are going to talk about today will push back against what I believe to be a different gospel. It's a different gospel that is pervasive, especially among the younger generations of professing believers. Christians who have, people who have been believers for decades, a long time, we grown. So we come from that old by and by gospel. We get it. But we're still affected. But there are, there's a new gospel message, a different gospel that I intend to push back on today. Now, the biblical gospel and what is required of us as a result of the gospel, Jesus said in Mark 8, beginning in verse 34. He said this in verses 34 and 35. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the sake of the Gospels will save it. This is the biblical gospel message that requires three things. One, deny himself. You deny yourself. Two, take up your cross. And three, he said, follow me. The gospel according to the culture says, follow Jesus. Put your trust in Jesus, yes. But there's no denial of self, and there's no taking up your cross. So what you get is a, a bunch of churches that gather together to hear about what it means to put faith in Jesus, but there's no denial of self. In fact, all the things that you desire become what God intends to give to you as long as you don't let nobody stop your purpose. Follow Jesus, yes, but deny self? Take up your cross? That's missing. So you have a bunch of people who are waiting for God to give them all these things that he never promised to give. It's a gospel message that says, follow Jesus. God loves you. Put your trust in Jesus. True. But what happens after you do that? If there's no denial of self and there's no taking up your cross, then are you really following Jesus? It's a different gospel. I find myself often when speaking to believers across the country, I find them undoing the gospel that they were told to do. And I find even in our own church, it's important to remind us of the same because we are connected to the surrounding cultures through social media, through relationships, and we are also affected by this gospel that says, my faith is in Jesus, but deny self? Take up my cross? You know when Jesus said that? 
He said it before he died on the cross. People didn't have this beautiful picture of a suffering Savior who loves his people who died on the cross. When Jesus said that, in the moment he said it, all they knew was the cross was this, this form of suffering that no one wanted to undertake. So when Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me, nobody knew he was going to die on the cross except him. He was telling people, you have to choose to suffer if you're going to follow me. And that is antithetical to the gospel today. If you suffer, it's because you just suffer until God gives you your purpose. Got all these Christians waiting for God for something. He's like, what you waiting for? Last week's message, we felt it important to clarify the difference between satanic sorrow and godly sorrow. Any sadness after you sin that pushes you away from God is shame, and that doesn't honor the Lord. The sorrow, that's Judas' sorrow, the sorrow that drives you to God, like David in Psalm 51, that's the sorrow that God is pleased with. The title of that message was called, What We Must Understand After We Fall. Today's message is called, How to Sin, How Not to Sin. Let me explain what I mean. Last week, I brought up a scheme of the devil, which I believe to be one of the best schemes after we sin. The devil doesn't just want us to sin. He wants us to walk away from our faith altogether and join him in eternal damnation. He doesn't care if you sin. Let me tell you why the devil's not just trying to get you to sin. You know why? Because he knows all sin's forgiven. He knows you'll be forgiven. He's trying to get you to be so discouraged and so distant that you end up walking away from God, convincing yourself that God is tired of forgiving you and somehow your sin is so important that, and so magnitude that God can no longer forgive you. And then people walk away. They move away from God as if they weren't far enough away already. And I brought up this passage in 1 John 2.1 to encourage us. It says this, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus the Christ. Amen. There is an understanding from this passage alone that sin is something that we still commit as believers. It still happens. But if we're being honest, there is a scary dilemma that discourages us when the Bible talks about sin and this when we read passages like the next chapter of John, do we get confused and concerned, and to some degree, rightly so. 1 John 3, 4 through 10, which is our main passage today, he says this, beginning in verse 4 of 1 John 3. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in sin, abides in him, keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. 
By this, it is evident who the children, who are the children of God, and who the children are, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. How do we reconcile 1 John 2, 1? If we sin, we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus. How do we reconcile the fact that he says we're still going to commit sin? We have an advocate. How do we reconcile that with no one born of God continues to sin? The last I checked, and I don't know everyone in this room. I don't know everyone. But no one in this room hasn't sinned. Is done sinning. How do we reconcile these statements? We love the first John 2 1. Hey, praise God. We have an advocate before the Father. But then when we get to verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. All of a sudden, uh oh. Is there a difference between committing sin and practicing it? If so, well, what's the difference? No one born of God will practice sin, but people born of God still commit it. So how do you know what your sin is? How do you know if you're practicing or committing sin that Jesus forgives? Because those who practice sin, what we just read, are not going to be forgiven. Which one are you? How do we reconcile this? What are we missing? What are we not getting? Let's go back to verse 4 of 1 John 3. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. What does this mean? Because there are people in this church, self-included, that still sin. The language is intentional. Verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning, make a practice of sinning. Verse 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. What is the difference? How do you know which sins you are committing? Because I promise you, there are people in this room and who are watching on that camera that this passage, 1 John 3, 4 through 10, is talking about. And I would not be faithful to the Lord if I didn't say it, he said it, I'm obligated to. God doesn't put passages like this to shatter confidence. He puts them in the Bible to warn us, to make sure we know that he's very serious. He did not send his son to die on the cross so people that profess to believe in him can live continual defeated lives, constantly falling into sin forever, not making any progress, I don't think he intended for people to be Christians over the course of time and to be babes in Christ. 
We're supposed to start off with milk and then get to solid food. But there are some people that are satisfied with milk. And let me tell you why, based on verse 5. In John, 1 John 3, 5, he says this, You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. He says he takes away sins. What does that mean? Well, this often refers to by most people that Jesus takes away sin by dying on the cross. They're meaning to say that Jesus has taken the penalty for our sin. And this is the part where even if you don't really believe in Jesus, you accept that reality because nobody wants punishment. Nobody wants penalty. So everyone, even if you don't go to church, don't believe in Jesus, don't pray, don't do anything, you will accept that proposition because no one wants to receive the penalty for sin. And this is the gospel message today. Jesus has taken away the penalty of your sin. And that's true. But we tend to emphasize the penalty taken away as if that's the only way to apply the reality of what Jesus did. Jesus didn't just take away the punishment of sin. He took away the power of it. When it says he takes away sins, it's not just talking about the penalty for it. You will not find an incredible translation. You may find a pastor who teaches it, but you won't find an incredible translation that Jesus died for the penalty of sins so that his people can just live however. And we know that intellectually, but the question is, do you believe that functionally? Do you believe that he came to take away not just the penalty, but the power of sins? 1 Corinthians 15, 56 and 57 says this. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. All right? The power of sin is the law. Now, this was written in that day. The power of sin was the Mosaic law. For us, the power of sin is the law that we create for ourselves. I'm a good person. I can believe in God. I'm spiritual. See all these people, everybody's spiritual. Well, you do know the evil spirits, though, right? You do know that, right? There are demons, and we know about this principalities, rulers, authorities. These are spirits, too. So if you're spiritual, what does that mean? But people are basically saying, oh, I don't need God, I don't need, I don't need church, I'm spiritual. I'm on a spiritual journey. Okay, cool. What's the destination? What's the last stop? Because I'm on a spiritual journey too. What's the last stop? The universe? Jesus took away the penalty of sin, yes. But he took away the power of sin. That means the people who profess to believe in Jesus are supposed to live differently. For he did not give us a spirit of fear, but one of power, love, and self-control. But you look at a whole bunch of believers who are stuck in sins, stuck in patterns, stuck in apathy. 
as if God is like, hey, my spirit is in you. It's not how we're supposed to live. He took away the penalty and the power, but it's our responsibility to take away the practice of it. The practice of sin is our responsibility. God said, okay, I did what I needed to do. I'm going to help you take away the problem, but you got to participate. The penalty for sin, we couldn't do nothing about that. The power of sin, we couldn't do nothing about it. But the practice of it, we cooperate. We have to participate with God. Listen to this in Revelation 12, 10 and 11. Y'all know this verse real well. Verse 10, we hit this so hard last year, y'all should know this backwards. In the supernatural storyline, this is all we was talking about. Revelation 12, 10, he says this, And I heard the loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of the brethren has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And then in verse 11, he says this, listen to this, And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their own lives even unto death. Listen to what it says. There's, there's the practice of sin is we're supposed to participate in. Because he says that they've conquered him by the blood of the lamb, faith in Jesus, death on the cross, and by the word of their testimony. You know what that means? That means that people who have professed to believe in Jesus, who are covered by the blood of the lamb, their testimony is what you tell other people. You tell other people how God has changed your life. And he says that's how they conquered the devil. It wasn't just, okay, I'm a Christian and nobody knows about it. Because when nobody knows about it, you're not even accountable for what you do. There was a while, there were four, I remember when I first started to really dig into the Lord, I was still too gangster, right? I was a street dude coming out of, and I was like, you know what? I will never get one of them bumper stickers with a fish on it. Remember that when everybody had them bumper stickers with a fish? I would never get one. And the reason why is because I was like, if somebody cuts me off, I might see me. I was immature then. I was like, I was, I was smart enough to know if I get that bumper sticker, that says I'm a Christian on the back. And I know that we ain't in the Sims game where a believer is over your head. So I wasn't trying to let nobody know I'm a Christian. Not on my car, at least. Because when I saw somebody's bumper sticker and they got, they got pulled over, I was like, look at y'all, man, y'all wild. <laughs> if I got pulled over, look, look at this dude. He looked like he did something. That's the world we live in. He said they conquered by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And guess what? They loved not their lives even unto death. He wasn't saying they had the death wish. They were just saying my faith in the blood and me talking about it is not going to even death is not going to stop me from doing that. That's the other problem I have with this contemporary gospel that the younger generation is hearing. It wants us to expect so much from God in this life that we lose love for the next world to come, the next life. Everybody's waiting for something in this life. Like nobody's called to no suffering. You might not get married. You might not have kids. You might not get the promotion. You might not get that house. You might, your kids might not grow up and honor the Lord. We love this life so much. 
God's got your purpose. You got to, you got to do this and do that. And do, don't, let, don't block God from always waiting for a blessing. What if the blessing is you just persevere to the end? How come I don't never hear that? When's the last time you heard these pastors say that? I got a word from the Lord this morning and he said that we got to suffer and believe until the end. He's going to reward us with a crown of righteousness. How come don't nobody get a word from that? Why is it always a word about a blessing or something else you're supposed to receive? What if God said, look, you receive salvation, and when you make it up top, I got something nice for you. I'm not saying that's all we should do, but is it never what we should do? It's a different gospel. So it doesn't cultivate a denial of self. It cultivates desires within self. And so you got all these people not thinking about denying themselves or taking up their cross. They just following Jesus, waiting, waiting. You know, I can't prove what I'm about to say from the Bible. I can't prove it. But I honestly believe that I think when we stand before God and we're given an account, right? I think because, you know, we, we, we're confined to time, days, minutes, seconds, days, hours. I think God is going to show us, hey, you spent 37 hours, 37 years of your life binge watching Netflix. And you spent 11 months praying to me. You spent 24 years of your life worrying about things that didn't even happen. And you spent two years having confidence in me. You spent 39 years complaining about these things. 14 years of being bitter at this person. Let me show you how many times you prayed for more than an hour in a day. And then let's compare that to how many times you entertained yourself every hour of the day. I think he's going to show us that and we're going to be like, wow. Some of us now have patterns that set us up, that set us up to not really pursue the Lord. And I think we think because he took away the penalty for our sins, that's true. This church will never not teach that as long as I'm here, Mike's here, Banjo, Warren, whoever else. But that's not it. God speaking through this passage, he says in verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteous, righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever, practices, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Why does he say, let no one deceive you? Why does he say that? Verse 7, let no one deceive you. And from God's perspective, what does it mean to keep on sinning or make a practice of sin? Let no one deceive you. If you keep on sinning and make a practice of sin, you are of the devil. Why does he say let no one deceive you? 
Two reasons. The first, contextually. The context. What is John writing to? What's the issue that the believers he's writing to are facing? John is writing a letter pushing back against people who are influencing genuine believers that these people are committed to Christ but are living in willful, active sin. These people believed what is called Gnosticism. Theologian William Barclay says this about 1 John, the passage we're in. He says this, this passage is directed against the Gnostic false teachers. As we have seen, they produced more than one reason to justify sin. They said that the body was evil and that therefore there was no harm in satisfying its lust to the full because what happened to it was of no importance. They said that truly spiritual people were protected to such an extent by the spirit that they could sin to their heart's content and come to no harm. Y'all don't see this today? These pastors, popular prophets, everybody's like, oh, the Lord's anointed. When I say that, I'm joking. These people really mean it. And they think, like, because they have these gifts or this influence, that somehow they can just sin. And people just make excuses for it. It's the same thing they were doing that John was writing a letter about. But it's not just people who are popular. It's people everywhere. So they even said that there was an obligation on true Gnostics both to scale the heights and to plumb the depths so that they might be truly said to know all things. What he means by that is that they had a low view of what you do in the body but believed in a secret supernaturalism. They received special revelations from the Lord, and that's what Christianity meant to them. And if you don't get these special revelations, then you're on a different tier of Christianity. But what you can do with your body is incidental. They taught that you can know God while still continuing in sinful behavior. So John is challenging believers not to imitate them because that perspective is of the devil. And that sin will not be forgiven by God. Make no mistake, it is not God's job to forgive sin. It's his decision to do so. There will be people who are expecting to be forgiven that will be told, I never knew you. I don't know you. Why? Because you were sinful. Not because you didn't serve in the church or do these things. These people said, I did all this stuff in your name. I don't know you. Because your life, you were practicing lawlessness. In 1 John 3, he says this to make sure that everyone knows. 1 John 3, 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Purify is the Greek word hognizo, and it means to dedicate oneself, to make ritually clean, to purify. It means, in our language, to create distance from sinful patterns, to be casting off, not casting out, making distance. This is not attractive to people. People want a gospel that gives them all this stuff. They want a gospel that doesn't really challenge what they do, challenge their desires. They love the yes and amen from God, not the no, but not now. People want a different, so they, get, they, they struggle. They don't like this message. Making a practice of sin has a lot, has to do with not dedicating oneself to holiness. 
And please don't be mistaken. It doesn't mean because you go to church and core group that you're dedicated to holiness. It just means you're dedicated to the structures that we have in the church. You coming here, thank you. Glad you come. Glad more of y'all coming on time. I think it honors the Lord. Grateful for that. But we're not doing anyone a favor by being faithful to the Lord, except ourselves. When you make a practice, the Greek word is poieo. It means to manufacture, produce, to prepare, to carry out, to result in, to bring about. But we do this, though, right? None of us accidentally sin. At least most of them. I mean, you get cut off. You might be in a good mood. Somebody cut you off all of a sudden. Now you're angry. But for the most part, you don't accidentally watch pornography. You don't accidentally lie to people. You don't accidentally gossip. You don't accidentally slander people. We do these things, right? We do this all the time. So what are we missing? Why does he say, let no one deceive you? After stating that Jesus came to take away sins. Contextually, it was who he's talking about to John. Principally for us. Because I think it's a scheme to focus on the penalty of sin being removed, but the practice doesn't have to be. That is not why Jesus died. That is not why Jesus died. We celebrate the cross that he died for our sins, but we can neglect that we must die to those sins. In other words, we have confidence that Jesus died for our sins, but are less confident that we can die to them. So here was the scheme of the devil for the people that John was talking to. It was, you can lend sinfully because the body is unimportant to God. And so John wrote these words. He'd be like, no, don't do that. Here's a scheme of the, for the believers, of the devil for the believers I'm talking to. We don't have to fight sin as hard because Jesus took the penalty. We don't. And when I'm challenged to fight as hard, it's like, whoa, where's the grace? As if Jesus' warning about hell lacked grace. Both of these mindsets lead to practicing sin rather than committing it. But still, what is the difference? Because we sound like we practice this. What is the difference? Some of you are uncomfortable right now. And some of you should be. I'm not here to mince any words. You know that's not how I get down. I'll crack a joke at some point, but I'm not playing. Because he's not playing. I have to take this seriously. In my own life. But so do you, if you profess to believe. So what's the difference here? What are we missing? The one word that best sums up making a practice of sin is the word intentional. Intentional. God is saying genuine Christians will not continue sinning intentionally because God's seed is in them. Let me explain what I mean. In Romans chapter 6, verses 13 and 14, and mind you, you're going to see this in a second, this kind of language is all over the New Testament. This language is all over. I don't know what passage you listen to, who your favorite, but if he doesn't hit these verses, he's missing something. Because this language, this sentiment is all over the letters of the New Testament. I don't know what purpose that people are waiting for, but I know that there's commands like this in Romans 6. 
Do not present your members, present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you were not under law but under grace. Present is the Greek word peristema. It means to put at someone's disposal, to represent, to demonstrate, to cause, to serve as. He said, don't present your members to sin. Dominion. He said, for sin will not have dominion over you. This is to dominate. To gain possession of. To be possessed. To reign over. He says, if you're a believer in Jesus, your life should not be dominated by sins. Intentional. Listen to 1 Timothy 5.20. Listen to what he says here. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. As for those who persist in sin, persist to continue steadfastly, course of action, especially in spite of opposition, to last or endure tenaciously. People who persist in sin. He's saying rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. We don't even like to tell each other about patterns and habits that we see. There's people in this room that got problems with people and never tell those people. You'll talk about them but won't talk to them. So now I got hear about them. I got to get, okay, let me figure out how to and then me and Mike got to figure out the puzzle piece because we don't want to. It's like, why don't you go say it to them? As for those who persist, this is intentionality. Persistent sin. I know some people that profess to believe and by their actions you cannot tell. And we're so gracious that we're like, well, I, they profess to believe as if there's a difference. The Bible doesn't make that distinction. If you profess you don't practice. If you profess, you persevere. If you believe, you obey. The Bible doesn't have, well, he's Lord, but not Savior. He's Savior, but not Lord. These aren't categories the Bible has. Jesus says, look, either you believe in me and you love me by obeying my commandments, or you don't. You don't accidentally persist in sin. It's intentional. If you persist in modern-day vernacular, it means you're not tripping. And God is saying, well, I am. I am. I love this church with all my heart, but there are far too many immature people in this church that have been in this church for a long time. You are far too immature for how long you've been walking with the Lord, and it's time to stop playing with God. been a Christian for a while. It's time to step our game up. Spiritual warfare is gone. And I'm not saying nobody is. 
But I'm not going to act like everyone is. So if you're offended, ask yourself, is it me, Lord? Don't focus on how I said it or if you like what I said. Just ask like Peter and the disciples, is it I, Lord? And if it's not, praise God. Keep moving. If it is, okay, Lord, how do I press in? Because I can guarantee you it's some. And if you don't know if it's you, ask me. If I know you, I'll be honest and tell you. Intentional just simply means I'm just sending on purpose. On purpose. Hebrews 10, 26, 27. Listen to this language. If you think I'm serious, if you don't like my tone, listen to God's tone right here. Listen to what God says right here. Hebrews 10, 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. I did not say this. This is God's word. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. The Greek word for, for deliberately is hekousios, and it means deliberately. But it also means intentionally. It means willingly, of one's own free will, recklessly. What God's saying, if we keep sinning recklessly, purposely, after the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment. Those who practice sin are intentional, but not all sin is intentional. Because how could he say in 1 John 2, 1, if you sin, we have an advocate before the Father. So he's obviously not talking about the sin in 1 John 3, because there's sin. And right before that, in chapter 1, it says that we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So he clearly has in his mind there are sins that professing believers commit that God does not see as practicing, as recklessly, deliberately sinning. So then what sin is that? That's the sin that I think God sees for most of the sins that genuine believers commit. So let's talk about what that sin is. The first sin, practicing, is intentional. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Sorry that John said, may the whole body heal. I was like, well, do that in the Lord. <laughs> what sin is God talking about that is not intentional, that Jesus is an advocate for? Let's go back to 1 John 2, 1. He says this, my little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus the Christ. So this sin, you have an advocate. You'll be forgiven. The sin of 1 John 3, you're born of, you belong to Satan. You're not forgiven. That sin is intentional sin. So what sin is this? This sin is what we would call habitual. And there's a difference. Let me explain what I mean. The word habitual means fixed by or resulting from habit, having developed a specified character through force of habit. 
This is the majority of the New Testament is speaking to habitual sins. It doesn't always use the word habit, but it's talking about creating new habits to replace old ones. This is the overwhelming language of the New Testament. That there are sins that we commit that are out of habit, and often that habit comes out of inheritance. Remember in the supernatural storyline of the Bible, for those who were here for that, I said the difference between the sin of Satan and the fallen angels versus the ones of humanity was habitual versus intentional. Satan sinned intentionally, on purpose. No provocation, nothing. He just did it. The fallen angels in Genesis 6, they sinned intentionally. They sinned against the grace of God in the face of God. We have no exegetical biblical reason to believe that when Satan fell, the fallen angels inherited a sinful nature from Satan. They did it maybe imitating him, but they had no reason to do it. It was intentional. But you and I sin because we inherited it from Adam and Eve. We inherited the ability and the desire to sin from Adam and Eve. And you're born with this. There's nothing you can do about it. There's not a human being born except for Jesus who wasn't born by human, by, the, by a human father. The transmission of the seed of Adam didn't hit Jesus. There's, he's the only human born that doesn't have this problem. Everyone else, we're born with it no matter what. We inherit it no matter what. That's why your kids will cry in church loud and don't care what you think. <laughs> they don't care. You embarrassed, you upset, you mad. You want to shake them, but you know it doesn't honor the Lord. So you go in the hall when you tap that leg. You know, we from that. At least the black folks are, we from that. Tap that leg, hey, stop it. Tap that arm, stop it. Shoot, them kids cry harder when you do that. Then you, that's called hustling backwards where I'm from. We sin because we're born with it. It's a habit for us to sin. We're not able to not sin. So God has compassion on us because these are sins of habit. This is what we inherited habitually. The angels and Satan, that was intentional. So they're not forgiven. You see, God's consistent. I'm not forgiving intentional sin, whether you're a cosmic being that I created or a human being that I created. If you sin intentionally, you are of the devil. But habitually... By habit? Well, we can't help that. We inherited that from Adam. Romans 5, 12 says this, verses 12 and then 18 and 19. Here's what verse 12 says. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all men sinned. Sin came into the world through one man. Verse 18 of Romans 5. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. God knows, man, they inherited this. They can't not sin. And the only way I can accept them with me is to have them not be sinful, but they can't not sin. So we have a problem because I got to punish sin. Because if I don't punish sin, then I got to let Satan and them go. And I can't do that. I don't know why I'm talking as I'm God or something. I don't know why I'm doing that. 
feel like one of these pastors. And God said, God can't do that. So God said, okay, for me to, to not have to punish the sins of every human being born, I'm going to send my son, myself, my own son, to come and take the punishment. And then I'm going to give them my spirit to help them take the habits that they learned and create new habits. But if you don't work to create new habits, then those habitual sins will become intentional. This is all over the New Testament language. Look at this, Titus 11, 2, 11 through 14. Here's what he says here. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Listen to this. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Didn't we just talk about this not too long ago in the app? And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possessions who are zealous for good works. This one passage is saying it all, that God's spirit is in us, his seed that remains in us from 1 John 3, 9, so that we can renounce, we're putting on new habits. We're getting rid of this stuff. We're going to be like, no, I'm not going to continue to do that. I'm not going to continue to think that. This is why the scripture says, take your thoughts captive. Don't sit there and act like you're captive to your thoughts. Grab them and take them and be like, nah, Lord, forgive me for that. I'm not giving into that. He's saying he taught us to appear to live upright and godly lives. And listen to what he's saying. Verse 14, who gave himself for us, for what? To redeem us from all lawlessness, not just the penalty of sin, but the practice of it. Why? Because he wants to purify for himself a people of his own possession. People who are zealous for good works. He wants to do that. He wants to have a people who are mature, who are denying themselves, taking up their cross, and following Jesus. He's not impressed with people who make excuses for themselves, shriek at the thought of suffering, but then say they follow Jesus. I said this before, back in the beginning of this series. I said, James 1, 3, 1 says this. Not many of you should presume to be teachers because you know we will be judged with a stricter judgment. And that's true. I will be judged with a stricter judgment than you because God gave me the words to teach and holds me accountable and responsible for them. I am. But it says we will be held to a stricter judgment. That means everyone else's judgment will be strict. God is not going to be this Father time, old dude, it's like Santa Claus, it's just glad to see you. I don't think he's going to be like that. Maybe when it's just us with him. I do not think that God is playing about these things, nor is he so sympathetic that he doesn't expect or demand the people that profess to believe in him to really press in, to deny themselves. Jesus denied himself the right to access the fullness of his being God because he was a human being. We deny ourselves the right to give in to sins because they're pleasurable or because we're hurt or whatever it is. It hurts. There are some things that there are people who offend us that we just want to let have it. And the Lord says, no, don't do that. Overlook the offense. And it feels like they're getting away with something. Let me assure you, nobody's getting away with anything. They're just getting away from you and I doing something about it. God doesn't need you to be him in that sense. 
whenever you, if you think I'm just saying stuff, ask yourself this question, how? Whenever you read verses like we're about to read, ask yourself, how, do, how does this happen? How do I do this? Romans 12, 2. Ask yourself how every time you read passages like this. This is what I do all the time. So I can, I'm like, man, how do I? And it starts to click. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to the image of this world. How? How do I not be conformed? But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. How? How do I be transformed by the renewal of my mind? By testing. You know what testing is? Thinking and creating habits. By testing, you may discern, understand what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So how are you transformed? By creating new habits. You test them and you figure out, yep, this, not that. I told my son one time, because he'll hear like, he'll be like, Poppy, I heard this voice say, hey, you're going to be all right. Just continue to follow me and so forth. He'll tell me that. And I'll be like, that's good, son. That sounds like it could be the Lord. And I said, but be careful, because the enemy's clever. He'll tell you stuff like that that sounds like it's the Lord so that you can trust the voice. And then all of a sudden you start thinking that's God talking to you each time. And then you start saying stuff that's just not exactly right. Then all of a sudden, next thing you know, you listen to the voices that's telling you something different. The enemy's clever. I said that whenever you hear something, make sure it lines up with the word of God. And don't always believe everything like it is. Take it at for each instance if you hear something. I said, because God isn't talking to most people like that. I'm not saying he doesn't, but I don't got no evidence that God is his good morning, Curtis. Oh, he just doesn't do that. That ain't what happens. I wake up, back hurt, itching, neck, got to pray, distracted, songs coming in my head I ain't heard since 1982. Like, why is this song in my head right now? I feel like a demon's right there, like, you're the best around. No one's going to ever keep you down. I'm like, why am I thinking about that song? And if it's the wrong song, I might, you know, you're throwing some Chuck Brown or something. I say, Aron Joe. I might start grooving a little bit and be like, hold on, my bad, Lord. I'm tripping right now. I got to press in. I got to sit on the edge of my bed at 4.30, 5.30 in the morning with my hands open and just pray. And I pray in my mind, not with my mouth, because when I pray with my mouth, I can just go. My mind, I want to I take those thoughts captive. I'm tired, but I still press in. Creating habits. And all of a sudden, you start creating a habit to pray. Now praying for an hour is like, that's not even enough time. Right now, for most of you, praying for an hour would be like, dang, I got to pray for an hour? You don't even got the stamina for it. We need obedient stamina. Obedient stamina, you create new habits. But if you don't create those habits, then those sins become intentional. You don't, listen, Jesus is an acquired taste. He's an acquired taste. Everybody can believe in him. But not everybody wants to live for him. You know what's interesting about the word believe? If you take the second E out of believe, you know what it says? Be live. If you're a believer, take the second E out. It means be livers. Be a liver of the word. It's people who don't even live for the Lord, but they say they believe. How do you not live? The actual word believer is going to convict people. You were a believer. Well, let's, it says be liver. Be a liver of the, you're not even a liver. You're not, livers, be livers of what you believe. There are people who say they believe and they don't live. They may impress us. We may not want to say nothing because we don't want to. But the Lord will. Ephesians 4, 20 to 24. He says, but that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and through corrupt desires. 
How do I put off my own self? How? Ask yourself how when you read these passages. Don't read them to act like you just got it because you've read it 100 times. Ask yourself, how do I do this? How am I supposed to put off this? And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. How? How? You got to create new habits. And you got to put off old habits. And sometimes the habits aren't sinful, but they distract you from giving in to the habits that are godly. I used to laugh when people would say, hey, I'm taking a break from social media, guys. Because I was like, dad, is that serious for you? Now I understand that we all have sort of a digital nervous system. I used to be like, dad, is that serious? You got to take a break? Taking a couple months off? Oh, I think most Christians should do that. Now, I think we should just be like, you know what, Lord? I'm not going to end my night watching television shows and then going to sleep. Look, checking my apps and scrolling Facebook. I'm not going to end my night like that anymore. I'm going to end my night in prayer and a little bit of reading. I'm not going to end my night that way anymore. I don't end my nights anymore watching stuff. I got shows I'm supposed to finish. I ain't even finished yet. Because I just don't, I just, I'm not drawn to them right now. I'm not saying this to boast. I'm saying I'm trying to live the very thing I'm telling you to do. This modern gospel message is put your faith in Christ, believe in Jesus, but deny yourself and take up your cross? Nobody says that. We preach this gospel. We tell people they're saved. Cool. But we don't explain to people like, hey, this is what it means to be saved. You got to deny yourself. You got to take up your cross. And this is a danger for many of us who've been Christians for a long time because we kind of been there and done that. We've done that. And so now it's kind of like we lose the passion. Why do you think Jesus said to the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2, he said, look, this, I see this. I see this about you. You did this, this, and this. I'm pleased by that. But he said, this I have against you, that you've forgotten your first love. You're not doing this because you love me anymore. He said, go back and do the works you did at first. Now, some of us grew up in the church and can't always distinguish when. So for you, think about the time when you really felt like, man, I just love God. I just want to do everything for God. And go back and do those works. For some of us who know what it's like to transition from non-Christian to Christian, remember when you was first saved? I mean, I was. I was just bold. I was just, I'd be interrupting conversations on the bus. I remember being on the bus, catching the bus home. And I heard somebody talking, and I would just be like, hey, excuse me. My bad, man. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I heard you saying, like, you need, you hoping to get funding for college and stuff. Hey, if you accept Jesus, he might be able to do that. <laughs> I said, I'm not saying he will, but let me tell you what Jesus said. I was just saying stuff. <laughs> Leading people to the, to the cross on the bus. Getting off the bus like, all right, man. Stay with it. Found the church. I don't know if them people made it or not, but you know what? All I cared about was saying something because I love Jesus. When did you stop loving Jesus? When did you stop loving Jesus so much that you can't pray for an hour a day? When did you stop loving Jesus that you don't even want to tell people about him even though you believe that hell is real? When did you stop loving Jesus so much that you don't memorize his word anymore? Stop being impressed with the scripture that I know. That doesn't mean nothing. My mother told y'all, I used to see three by five note cards every day all over the place because I took it serious. Don't live vicariously through godly people. Be godly people. When did you stop loving Jesus so much that you good? 
You got it figured out. I don't got it figured out. I've been telling the Lord every day, I'm a mess. What do you have me being a pastor here for? I said, Lord, you don't need me. I'll be the first and say, Lord doesn't need me. He's not impressed with nothing I say or do. These are all things I'm telling myself that he's telling me that I got to do. You have to deny yourself. How do you do that? How do you take up your cross? By taking off the habits that you inherited or the habits that you cultivated and sold to and putting on new habits. And be patient. Godliness is a lifetime. It's not a week. Don't think because you resisted lust for a couple of days that it's just going to leave you alone. Don't think that because you say the Lord is my is my master, not anxiety. The anxiety is going to be like, oh, man, all right, man. You know, <laughs> you know you'd be watching them commercials about like the, the, the remember the raid commercials back in the day? Raid! And they spray and them joints be, ah, they be running. Man, sin don't do that. Sin don't be like, oh, man, he praying right now. Nah, I don't do that. That joint would be like, all right, you got this one. But I'm going to remind you of how good this felt over here tomorrow, though. Oh, you got this one. You praying for love. Okay, you being loving. You've been good today and tomorrow. You've been good, but I'm going to show up on that Thursday. I'm going to have somebody say something to you that you don't like because I know what you don't like. I know that you don't want people talking to you like that. The enemy's not giving up because you say, I bind you in the name. They don't care about that. Be like, all right, I'll be back. I'm patient. Listen, evil beings are not getting destroyed. Until the second death. They're around. They love these believers who just casually believe but are so worried about everything else. They love one you. They want you to just be so focused on school you can't participate in nothing else. You so busy worrying about your, G your GPA that you ain't worried about your God's grade point average. He wants you to focus so much on school as if you getting a degree to him is more important than the degrees in which you grow in him. I'm not saying don't do your schoolwork, be faithful, but you got to be more faithful than just faithful to that. University of Maryland wants your money. Jesus wants your life. Amen. Let me tell you what 1 John 3, 9 and 10 says this. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who the children of God are and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Colin Cruz, theologian, says this about these two verses. What John is saying may be put down in four stages. A, the ideal is that in the new age, sin is gone forever. B, Christians must try to make that true and with the help of Christ, struggle to avoid individual acts of sin. C, in fact, we all have these lapses, and when we do, we must humbly confess them to God, who will always forgive the penitent heart. Remember Psalm 51, verse 17? What did he say? For God, a contrite spirit and a contrite heart is what God loves. Your personality doesn't impress God. Your theology doesn't impress God. Your charismatic gift don't impress God. You so gifted you can't even cry when you sin. I know people who so you so you talk so well, 
But you apologize to people for things you said and did. Where's the brokenness? When's the last time you cried because you feel like, Lord, I, I want to love you more than I am right now? He says, in spite of that, Christians cannot possibly be deliberate and consistent sinners. Christians cannot live a life in which sin dominates their actions. John is not setting before us a terrifying perfectionism, but he is demanding a life which is always on the watch against sin. A life in which sin is not the normal accepted way, but the abnormal moment of defeat. John is saying that those who abide in God cannot sin. But he is saying that those who abide in God cannot continue to be deliberate sinners. He's not saying that genuine Christians will not have individual acts of sin. John is saying no genuine Christian will live a life of intentional sin. And lastly, why is this distinction important between habitual sin and intentional sin? And by habitual, I just mean we sin out of habit. Why is it intentional? Three reasons in closing. One, because we need faith for change. Many of us have faith that when we die, our sins will be forgiven, but we don't have faith that we can die to our sins as people forgiven. We need faith. You ever wonder why Jesus always said your faith has made you well? You ever wonder that? Listen to Matthew 9, 9, 21 and 22. Listen to what Jesus said to this woman who he healed. He said this. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. Why didn't he say, I've made you well? Why did he say your faith made you well? And Matthew, a little bit, a couple, couple verses later, Matthew 9, 28 and 29, he says this. And when he entered the house, the blind men came to him and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this to heal them? And they said, yes. Lord. Then he touched their eyes saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. Why doesn't he say, according to my touching you? Why does he say, according to your faith? Luke 17, 17 through 9, he heals these 10 lepers and one comes back. And this is what happened in verse 17. Then Jesus answered, were there not 10 cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? There were nine Jews, one Gentile, and the Jews didn't come back and thank Jesus, the Gentile did. So Jesus said, this is the only one that came back to say thank you for healing them of leprosy? Verse 19, then he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Why does he say your faith instead of saying I've done this? Rarely does he say that. In fact, the only time I can think of is when he was in the Gentile region, in Mark 5, when he casted the demons out of, unto all them pigs, and he told the guy, go and tell everyone what the Lord has done for you. Most times he'll say, your faith has made you. Why does he say that? Because Jesus wants people to know that the hallmark of believing him is faith, but to believe that he's going to work, that he's working in you, requires faith. For many of us, we believe that our sins are forgiven, and that we're going to heaven when we die, but we don't feel like we can live a life of resisting the sins that we give into the most. And some of us need faith to believe that Jesus can take away the practice of your sin, can help you.
Some of you, all of us, we need faith for that. We think faith in our sins are forgiven and the penalty is all that it matters. No, sir. No, ma'am. That's why the church is how it is now, because everyone has faith that they're not going to hell. But do you have faith to resist the temptations of sin until you get to heaven is the question. Do you have faith for change for real? And if you don't, let's pray for that. Let's ask for that. We all have some areas where we haven't made the progress. But I don't think it's, I know for me, my areas are not because I, God can't do it. It's because I like a couple of them too much. I'm comfortable with them. I don't want to give all everything because I'm scared of what that will be like. All of us have that. But church is time. Spiritual warfare is crazy right now. And I'm grateful that our church is persevering in it. But it's not like, hey, we've arrived. Here's the party. No. Because last year, it seemed like every week something was happening. Every single week, it was like, you got to be kidding me. And some are still here, praise God. Some are not. Do you have faith for change for real? I know you'll cry and you'll do all those things, and I get that. We can have prayer right here, the keyboard will be up, and you'll come up and pray, and all that's real. I'm not saying nothing against that. But when you leave, do you have faith for change? Not are you waiting for Jesus to zap you. He took away the power and the penalty of sin, but we have to contribute to taking away the practice. He's not going to be like, no, 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 don't do that, don't do that, don't, don't watch that, don't watch that. He's not going to do that. He's not going to do that. He's not going to force you to not sin. He'll help you to not sin, but he ain't going to force you to not sin. Second reason why this habitual and intentional sin is important, because God is not forgiving believers who commit intentional sin. If you keep sinning deliberately, God said there's no sacrifice. I don't know. He will determine what that looks like. So if there's questions in the Q&A, I can't speak to those nuances. Let me say that now. I am not going to release anybody's conscience because I don't know what you're doing. I don't know how you are. I don't know. I know what I'm doing and the people who share with me what they're doing. I cannot. I'm not releasing anybody's conscience. Well, what about I'm not doing that? You have to go. The Lord will show you this is where you need to press in. And, and to be honest, some of you know. Some of you know already. That's why you was like, oh, no, what is, oh, I don't like this message. Some of you know already. Don't, I'm not going to ease your conscience because God doesn't ease mine. Here are the things you got to go after. Here it is. I don't, it's like I don't pray enough. I get up. I jump on my stuff. I get notifications. I got stuff, responding to comments on from YouTube videos and all this. And get up. Do, I was like, I know I used to get up early and pray. When was the last time you went through Pastor Kurt and prayed for the church? Every when was the last time you did that? That's what God wants to see. God's not impressed with this. Yeah, I'm funny. I can talk. So what? What does that mean? God's impressed with nobody. Let me get up and pray. Let me resist this. Let me take this thought. Can we push this thought away? Some of us, some of us, 
have a spirit of fantasy. Just be daydreaming about stuff all the time. Being in a relationship or, or getting this job or whatever it is. Nobody fantasizes about being in second, third place. Fantasizing that your spouse thinks so highly of you that they change all these things. Just be living in our heads. Sometimes we just say, you know what? That's fantasy. That's not, that's fiction. Fellowship is greater than fiction. I need to talk. I need to pray. One, you got to have faith for change. Do you really have faith for change? I'm not, if you do, don't, I'm not questioning you. I'm not making you question if you do. This isn't a, nobody's, nobody, no, that's how this is. But when I sit up here, I don't have the luxury to speak to the handfuls of people. I've been talking to many people. And last year, if nothing else showed me, that many people are doing stuff that we don't even know about until it comes to the surface. So I'm encouraged, but I'm just not convinced. One, we got to have faith for change. Jesus always said your faith made you well. Your faith in God can contribute to you changing your habits. We are creatures of habit. Dogs return to their vomit, Proverbs says. Last reason why habitual sin and intentional sin are important because sinning habitually is what makes us different than Satan and the cosmic powers of darkness. When we sin intentionally, when we live lives, we're like, well, I just says what it is. When we sin like that, we're like Satan. That's why he said, that's why First John, it says you belong to the devil. Sinning intentionally is of the devil. And every, everyone who, and remember, the Bible's written to people who believe. This isn't a book for your unsaved neighbor. It's written to you who believe. Do not let, do not let, the, do not be fooled into thinking it. Well, like, I've heard all this before. I know this stuff. Cool. How much of it do you live, though? I know all this stuff, too. I've been teaching the Bible in this church for 15 plus years. And this stuff, I'm like, mm, you know what, Lord? I think I've been a professional Christian a little bit. It's easy to be that because it's my job to teach and know the scriptures and do that. Do I do this when it's not my job? When it's my day off and my praying? Sure, I study the scriptures. I got to teach this message on Sunday. There was a point where I felt like, man, I'm only reading the Bible to think about what to teach. I wasn't reading it to be fed. And the Lord, Lord was like, son, I don't need your, your messages. It ain't like when I go on sabbatical, I come back and the church is gone. People are, hey, Pastor Kerr's back. Y'all don't need me. The Lord is, nah, I was like, nah, I was like, man, you don't, you got to read the Bible for you. You got to memorize scripture for you. I was like, you know what, man, I'm tripping. We got to replace our habits. Because God has said that's the only kind of sin that he's forgiving. But when you just don't care and it just dominates your life, I may feel bad for you, but I'm not going to pretend like but that, that God doesn't have something to say about that. So don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying it's far into sin as long as it's not intentional. That's not what I'm saying. We need to resist all desires to sin. What I'm saying is that habitual sins are in the process of change Intentional sins are unwilling to change. And you need to figure out, okay, 
other sins and other areas of my life that I have been unwilling to change. Maybe it's just too difficult. I got a couple. I think you got a couple. There's a few. It's like, you know what? It's just too difficult. Are there habits I don't feel like doing? I don't want to pray for an hour. You know what? Because you ain't got the obedience stamina to do it. So pray for five minutes. I tell people all the time, look, if you pray five times a day for just two minutes, that's ten minutes. Build on that. Don't think that God needs you to be in sackcloth and ashes, spread out. <laughs> Looking like the Rihanna Rain video, spread out. Lord, I just, and you ain't got the stamina for that. Don't be ashamed of it. That's not where you at. If you don't got the stamina to pray for an hour, pray for two minutes and build on that. But don't stay at two minutes. Don't talk about, I want to get there, but. May God, Jesus died for that but. So get your butt over there and pray to him. <laughs> We have to take seriously, yes, that Jesus came to take away the punishment for sin, but he also came to take away the power of sin. And he's reminding us we have to put away the practice of it for his glory and our good. Amen. Father, we, <clears throat> we are creatures of habit, Lord. You know that. You know that. That's why you sent Jesus, because it was impossible for us not to sin. But once we believe in Jesus and have your spirit in us, it's possible now to not sin. We went from impossible to not sin to now it's possible. Now, it doesn't mean we won't ever sin. But now it's possible to not live a life dominated by sin. Lord, give us the courage, the faith to think about our spiritual lives and stop putting everything else that we want first and hoping that and finding you somewhere on that line. You said, seek first the kingdom of heaven and all else will be given to you. Lord, help us to focus on and do the work. You call us to faithfulness. I'm not saying kids in college shouldn't focus on their studies, but man, Lord, don't let them focus so much on their studies that when they graduate, they don't even have habits and patterns to come to you and pray to you. Don't let us who have been Christians for decades think that we've, we're okay because we have a certain routine. There's always room for growth. There's always an area or two that we just like, oh, I'm not pressing it. Lord, I don't want to stand. I'm pro I am going to stand before you, but Lord, I don't want to, from, from, from now on, I don't want to stand before you and be like, from the time you said this, you spent more time doing this than this. Sure, I'm going to watch games and and you have not called me to get rid of my Redskin tickets. And I thank you for that, Lord. But I'll do it if you say it. I don't think that voice was from you right now, Lord. What you've called us to is to be creatures of new habits. May we work hard, Lord. It's not legalistic to resist sin or to change habits. There's no such thing as super godly. It's godly or ungodly. There's no such thing as super godly, Lord. We just want to be focused, and there are different levels of maturity, and that's true. But, Lord, may there be persistent maturity, not persistent excuses for immaturity. You've called us to be a, a people that belong to you, and so we must be righteous as you are righteous. 
Remind us to purify ourselves and give us the courage to challenge our friends and loved ones when they're not purifying themselves. For your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen.